Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, and also keynote and TEDx speaker and author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is the Mental Health Gym. That's the place to learn about positive psychology, my own spin on it that I call goal-achieving psychology, rejuvenating, and all kinds of other things related to wellness. My blogs and podcasts are on there, and it's also the place where you can communicate with me and even suggest guests for future podcasts. As listeners to the podcast know, my goal is always to bring you guests who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and in various ways can help us to become the best versions of ourselves in a most positive manner. And today's guest really fits that mold. Ling Lam, PhD, is a lecturer in counseling psychology at Santa Clara Clara University, teaches complex trauma, crisis intervention, LGBT counseling, family and couples therapy. Interestingly, Ling was uh, previously an engineer and part of the team that invented the world's first HDMI chip. So uh, we're we're probably going to get into finding out uh, why, why he's doing what he's doing now. But, and I should point out that uh, unlike some of our guests, Ling is not here to sell a book or a program or uh, teach us a brand new theory or stuff like that. But his background and his scope of his knowledge is so varied that we're going to cover some of the topics that we haven't really covered a whole lot. We'll try and do it in a coherent fashion, but uh, no promises. Let's see what happens. I know it'll be good, though. So, Ling, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Ron. I'm excited to be here. Well, And I'm not selling anything except how can we all feel better every day. Well, that's the goal of the podcast, so that's why you're here. That's um, right. Before we get into that, though, um, I always am interested in people's journeys to get yeah. to be who they are. Yeah. Um, not everybody who gets on here has a history of being an engineer. Uh, mm-hmm. We do, uh, and certainly there aren't that many psychologists who started out as engineers. So I guess uh, I'd be interested in knowing a little bit about your personal journey to get through engineering into psychology and particularly the type of work that that you do now. Yes. So um, just sort of maybe a one minute background about my journey from then to here. So I grew up in Hong Kong and in when it was a British colony. And my first day ever in the United States is freshman orientation. Uh, And I went to Stanford for my undergrad. So I can tell you that the first day ever in the U.S. is freshman orientation is very disorienting for me. But basically how I chose to be in study engineering is 
basically growing up in Hong Kong is a very traditional Chinese culture. And I was basically being a good Chinese boy. I cannot imagine telling my mom that I would be studying something like psychology or social science. I very much chose engineering by default as part of just a good Chinese son. I like it reasonably well, but I don't love it. And I think after I got my bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering, I worked a few years as an engineer. Then I hit what I called my quarter-life crisis, where I just felt very depressed. I felt kind of losing a sense of meaning in what I'm doing day to day. That's when I began to question, is this what I really want to do for the rest of my life? In my quarter-life crisis, I volunteered in an orphanage in Russia one summer. That changed a lot of how I feel about myself and my life. And then that also prompted me to change my career from engineering and went back to school to study psychology. Oh, that's really, really interesting. But it leads to another question, which is, uh, you know, coming from engineering, uh, you said, okay, I changed into experimental psychology or something like that. How did uh, you happen to get on my side of the continuum, uh, (laughs) the positive uh, goal-oriented kind of uh, direction? That, That is right. There are certainly differences because engineering is dealing with things, how to improve things how to make your TV and the internet work better and the software work better. And in psychology, we are dealing with humans. So in some way, it's actually more complex, more interesting. And actually, I find far more stimulating than when I was an engineer. And I actually, I practice uh, psychology and coaching in Silicon Valley. So a lot of my clientele is in engineering and high tech. So I find very much I can still use the thinking of engineering and the language of engineering and apply it to psychology. And I think they're actually very complementary uh, rather than as, as abrupt a change as they may seem on the surface. So I'm actually really enjoying combining the two in my work with my clients and teaching. Oh, very, very interesting. So I, one of the things that drew my attention is kind of the fact that you, while you're not selling a book on on the subject, that you do have kind of an overriding theory from which a a number of the things we'll talk about stem, and that's that all behavior is purposeful. Uh, On the surface, it makes a lot of sense, but uh, what does that mean? Yeah, and I think there's a long tradition in psychology that is basically in this direction. So it's not I'm inventing anything, but this is what it means to me. All behaviors are purposeful. It allows us to turn from self-judgment and self-pity to curiosity. If I'm struggling with depression, anxiety, if I find myself doing some behavior that actually doesn't help me to feel happy and help my relationship, instead of judging myself, and say, why am I sabotaging myself? Why am I using food as a way to numb my emotion? Why am I doing all these things that are not helpful to my life? Rather, you turn it around and say, if all behaviors are purposeful, rather than judging the behavior, let me be curious about what is the purpose for that behavior to exist. Let me give you a couple examples to make it really concrete. For example, if I am using overeating 
is the behavior that I want to change in my life, rather than judging myself. Why do I overeat? Why can I? Why do I have such hard time controlling my behavior? I can turn it around and ask: If overeating is a behavior that serves a purpose, what is the purpose that it serves? Oh, it's because when I use food, when I eat, that allow me to feel okay about myself. If the only time that I feel okay about myself is when I eat food, then of course I would keep eating food in order to feel good about myself. So that helped me to go from judging what was wrong with me to how can I find other ways to feel good so that I don't have to go to overeating as the only way to help me feel good. Right. So it's really helping you turn from judgment to curiosity. That open up a lot of possibility for self awareness and self reflection. So, if you become aware of that, mm-hmm. yeah, then what's the next step? Is, yeah, uh, that's it, right. Does that come from the person? Does that come yeah. from you? Yeah, right. So, so let, let let's use the overeating as a as an example. So instead of labeling the behavior as the problem. I see the behavior is actually an attempted solution at the real problem. The real problem is I don't know how to feel good about myself, and the eating is a way to help solve that problem, right? So it labeled the behavior as just an attempted solution that create other problems rather than the problem itself. Number two is for me to address the real problem, which is what is happening in my life. That prevent me from feeling good about myself more often, right? So I can explore that question, and then I can make some changes. Perhaps I don't feel good about myself because of some past unfinished business that is still haunting me. Perhaps I don't feel good about myself because I have a low sense of self worth and I have a negative belief that they, I'm not good enough. Whatever the reason, it allow me to actually explore. The real problem, rather than addressing the behavior, which is actually try to solve that real problem. So is I mean this is really interesting. So is uh, it kind of a haphazard thing, and the person tended to be unlucky to choose eating as opposed to maybe I can feel good about myself when I'm on stage or when I'm. Performing when I'm playing basketball or whatever it may be is uh, is there ways of taking that and using it more positively, and is that just kind of luck or uh, or how's that happened? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of factor in terms of what behavior that we choose. I think part of it is because of culture. There are certain behaviors that are more culturally Appropriate、uh, than other behavior. For example, in our society, when we try, to, let, let's say I'm a person who struggle with、uh, not feeling good enough about myself. I think one socially sanctioned behavior to address that is by being workaholics. I work all the time as a way to earn a sense of worthiness, as a way to feel good that there is something valuable about who I am. Right. So workaholism. Is more or less a culturally sanctioned way 
to try to resolve the issue about a lack of worthiness. There are other, other things that other people might judge in society, such as if I am, let's say, in a committed relationship and I go to affairs as a way to help me feel better, there might be more people who would judge me having an affair than people who would judge me having an affair with work itself. I see. So, so culture is one reason. Another reason is what exactly is the unresolved business that that unresolved trauma and painful experiences in my past and some of the looking at the unique life trajectory of that particular person. Okay, so that that leads me in kind of the next direction I wanted to go in. I know you've done work in the area of trauma and uh, I know there's a couple of things. uh, Trauma, of course, is, is... I hate to say kind of a hot topic, uh, but it looks like it's been even broken down further in in your view. I, I like I know you speak of complex trauma, vicarious trauma. What what kinds of traumas are there, and what makes one different than the other? Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about. I think trauma is a very underappreciated and misunderstood topic on one level, even though people talk about it a lot. So I think the most important distinction is trauma is not just the event that happened to us. Trauma is also how we responded to the event. Let me give you an example. Let's say I experienced uh, physical abuse as a child, right? As an example, Mm -hmm. being hit, being beaten, that itself is an event that potentially can create a traumatic outcome. But it's not just the beating, which is what happened to me, but also as I experience that trauma, do I have support? Do I have people that I can feel safe with, that I can talk to and share my experience? Right. So trauma is not just what happened to us, but what happened after what happened. After the traumatic event, am I feeling safe? Do I have support? A person that has support after the traumatic event will have a very different recovery journey than a person who don't have support after the traumatic event. Let me give you a quick example. There was a mass shooting in an elementary school in, I think, Connecticut, Newtown shooting in about 2011 or so. And there has been some researchers who follow the kids who survived the elementary school shooting. And what they discover is Depending on what kind of home the children go back to after they survive the shooting, their long-term trajectory is very different. If a child go back to a home where they feel loved, where they feel safe, where they can talk about their experience, right, and receive a lot of emotional support, that's a very different uh, uh, long-term trajectory than kids who go back home where their parents do not know how to talk about the event to them. The parents are not able to attune to their emotional experience. So trauma is not just what happened, but it's also what happened after what happened. Mm -hmm. What kind of resources, what kind of support, what kind of love do we get after we experience the traumatic event? Is that what's meant by post-traumatic growth then, where some people seem to actually do quite well uh, 
it, know, despite it, what happened to them? It, it is related because the more support that we receive in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, the more likely that we can really have a kind of post-traumatic growth and healing before the post-traumatic growth. So I just really want to emphasize that trauma is not the event, but also what, what we experience from the people around us after the event that then lead to the long-term impact of trauma on our brain and our body. And what is complex trauma? Yeah, complex trauma is a, a, a kind of trauma with a heavy relational component. For example, a type of trauma is a trauma like car accident, right? It's relatively impersonal. I get into a, a car accident and I get traumatized. There's no sense of betrayal, for example. A complex trauma is trauma with a heavy relational component. It's not just that I'm hurt, but I'm hurt by somebody that I'm supposed to trust. For example, if I'm a kid being abused or neglected by my caregivers, that is complex trauma. If I'm a teenager being bullied at school by my peers, that's complex trauma. If I'm a person, for example, of a minority group, or I'm an immigrant, and I get discriminated against by my community in society, that's complex trauma. All this trauma involves a significant relational component rather than being in person. Is that harder to treat or harder yes. to cover from? Than, than that's right. I, I think because if I am attacked by a stranger, right, that's very different than if I'm hurt by somebody who's very close to me. Because other than the physical or emotional injury, there's also a sense of my sense of safety, my sense of trust, my worldview that the world is in some way reliable and people are trustworthy is shattered, right? Being beaten by a stranger is different from being beaten by a partner that's supposed to be there to love and protect you. So the, the, how you deal with them is quite different because there's a betrayal of trust aspect to complex trauma. Very, very interesting and uh, really food for thought for those of us who you know, have others who are dependent on us and to recognize that, uh, but you're not talking about beatings and so on. And I, I know historically, I'd always learned that trauma is kind of a, uh, you're put in a life-threatening situation, which made me a little uh, uh, curious when I saw that you also uh, deal with vicarious trauma. What What is that? And then... How is yeah. trauma experienced vicariously? The, what I find very helpful as a metaphor about how our body and brain react to trauma is the metaphor of a rubber band. What you described earlier, on that there's a life-threatening event. That's like you pull on the rubber band so strong that the rubber band snapped immediately. Right? That is the kind of life-threatening event that can be very traumatic. But there's a second kind of trauma, which is you pull on the rubber band just a little bit, but you hold it there for years. When you release the rubber band after pulling on it for a little bit, but for years, after you release it, the rubber band doesn't go back to its original elasticity. So that's a different kind of trauma. That's trauma by a thousand paper cut until the rubber band loses its elasticity. Vicarious trauma 
is more like the second one. Whatever the traumatic event didn't happen to me directly, but by listening to other people's story and experiences, it is as if some of that happened to me also through the process of empathy. When I'm trying to really be there for you, as you are talking about some difficult experiences, I have to visualize and imagine what's it like to be in your shoes. But when I imagine what it's like to be in your shoes, experiencing those painful moments, our body react to the images in our mind the same way an audience react to the movie in the theater. When I try to be empathetic about your experience, my body also react as if some of that has happened to me. So that is the basis for vicarious trauma. If I'm not careful in taking care of myself by listening to other people's story over and over again, I can experience some of the symptom of trauma as if those things happen to me. By the way, this also happens when we are exposed to social media or the TV, when we are listening, watching the news of the terrible things that happen in the world over and over again. On some level, it leaves a residue in our own body. Yes, that's one more reason to not to watch too much TV that uh, <laughs> and go through traumatic experiences or uh, <laughs> vicariously. I, and as you were talking, I think I'm obviously quite a bit older than you, and I, I, I kind of think that this is something that a lot of us who grew up during the Cold War may have experienced because uh, we didn't know. I mean, we had the experience of the of knowing about the atomic bomb that ended bombs. I guess two of them that ended World War II. We knew it was a terrible kind of thing, and uh, we didn't know whether this was going to be a way of life. Uh, I mean, I guess it's it's never uh, never totally out of the picture as we've gotten worse and worse weapons. But certainly, I think at that time, you know, the fact that there were two primary adversaries that each had the bomb. I, I do remember that it was uh, it's a very dis discomforting time uh, and probably some vicarious trauma ex experience. I, I, I can completely imagine that. That's like just bracing for when is the atomic bomb going to go off. It's like pulling on the rubber band, which is a metaphor for our body just continuously for decades. And that does something to the rubber band when you pull on it chronically. Yeah, it's a very interesting analogy. Let me, uh, let me get to, uh, I mean, we're, we're positive psychologists, sort of. Uh, let's, let's talk about something a little more positive in, in some of our remaining time. Not, I guess it was about six or seven years ago, I, uh, I'm in Philadelphia, and when they hired a new football coach for the, for the Eagles, the owner had said one of the things he looked for was emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember hearing the word before. I've heard it a lot since. And I, I guess he did the right thing because the Eagles eventually won the Super Bowl with him. But uh, I uh, wonder, can you it's it's one of those things that I that by now gets used a lot, but I'm not sure that everybody uses it uh, the right way. So, what is emotional intelligence, and what 
Why is it important? Yeah. So I think if you look at the definition of emotional intelligence, it consists of four different components. Number one, self-awareness, understanding what's going on inside of me. What am I feeling and why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Self-awareness. Number two, self-regulation. After I become aware of what I'm feeling, developing the ability to regulate myself so I don't get overwhelmed or dissociated in life. So regulation. Number three, relational awareness, which is extending self-awareness to having an understanding of what's going on in you in terms of what is the impact of my behavior on you, having empathy for your experience, being able to build a reasonably accurate internal model for your experience, relational awareness. And number four is relational regulation. How do I use the first three components? Understanding myself, understanding you, being able to regulate my own experience as a way to co-regulate our relational experience. So those are the four components that I think is the foundation for emotional intelligence. So is it like uh, general intelligence? That, you know, is it something you've either got uh, or there's only so much of it you can develop? Or is it something that uh, you can decide, hey, I want to be more emotionally intelligent. Is there something I can do about that? Emotional intelligence is a very learnable skill. Other than teaching psychology, one of my other teaching engagement is at the Stanford Business School teaching a course on emotional intelligence to MBA students. And the whole course is about how they can become more emotional intelligent leaders so they can really be more effective in their workplace as well as creating a more human and uh, uh, optimal workplace for their future employees. So emotional intelligence is very much a learnable skills just like going to the gym, just like going to the mentalhealthgym.com. This is very much something that we can acquire no matter where we are in life. Hmm. And is that, I mean, is it a matter of taking a course or is there uh, is it therapy or what? How, how does one acquire the skills to become more emotionally intelligent? I think on a more most fund, foundational level, it's about having a kind of openness to other people's feedback, having a kind of curiosity to find out how, how other people experience me. It can be through a course, it can be through therapy, it can be through reading a self-help book, but all those are different ways that we can work on it. But fundamentally, it's an attitude of a growth-oriented mindset curiosity, openness, and wanting to continuously reflect and improve how I show up in the world. That is the foundational piece. Well, that's encouraging because it sounds like a lot of the things that we try to do at the mental health gym and some of the things I promote in rejuvenating really contributes to this. So it's, uh, it's nice to know that we might be doing some of that, even though, uh, haven't been calling it that. Maybe, maybe I can start, you know, calling it. I guess you don't have to be licensed to, to say that you're doing emotional intelligence. Maybe we can make that work. Um, yeah. 
I did promise the listeners that we'd be all over the place and mm-hmm. cover various topics, some of which uh, truly have never been covered before on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. just felt your skill set mm-hmm. is so appropriate for, for having a session at this point, Link, and I really appreciate uh, what, you've, what you've contributed. I know that uh, people who are listening will have gained a whole lot, you know, that is a real practical information that can, that's useful as well as understanding perhaps a little more about themselves or some people that they may be interacting with and maybe may help in terms of empathy and so on. So I, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm a little sorry that you're not uh, selling a book or or a course or somewhere where we can get more of this. Is there, are, are you on social media or anything or we gotta go to Santa Clara or Stanford to, to learn from you? Well, I, what, what I invite any listener who's interested uh, to keeping in touch is go to my website, therealink.com, which I imagine also is part of the podcast, maybe description, therealink.com. There is a mailing list that I am creating. And I, as of now, I'm not selling anything, no book, no online courses, nothing. But in the future, this is something that I feel passionately about. How do we understand trauma as part of making the world and our own life a better place? So for listeners who are interested, please go to my website, sign up for my mailing list, and I hope that I will have further resources that I can send out in that way. Also, they can go to my website to contact me if they have any additional questions after the podcast. Okay, and we will have that in the show notes. Again, I I can't imagine that some people won't want to follow up on this because you've given us a really tremendous presentation on, on so many topics. And as I said, some of them have just not been covered here before. So uh, really grateful. Uh, it's It's been a real education to help us become better versions of ourselves. Uh, so Ling, I am really appreciative of your spending time with us and uh, Looking forward to maybe doing this again sometime. I would love to. And thank you, Ron, for inviting me. And I wish you and your listener a wonderful rest of 2022. Okay, great. And same to you. So that brings to the close another great episode, very dynamic episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Our guest has been very, very generous with advice in different areas. And we thank Dr. Ling Lam for being with us today and look forward to hearing more from you in the future. In the meantime, everybody make sure that uh, you tell your friends about the podcast and make sure you download, rate, review. That's, That's how podcasts get known. And certainly feel free to contact me directly with any questions, any further suggestions about it. Remember to visit the Mental Health Gym for all kinds of wellness-related information. And again, you'll, you have uh, Ling's information in the show notes to contact him directly. And so until next week, when we have another informative, interesting, and helpful guest, 
Uh, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off, encouraging you to stay positive and stay safe. See you next time.